This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kristen Struer, and you are listening to episode 30. Before we launch into the episode, we wanted to acknowledge that it has been a hard and strange few weeks around the world, and we want to send our best to all of our listeners. We hope you are staying healthy, safe, and sane. And we hope that this episode lifts your spirits and is a great reminder about the heroes that are our health workers and health providers and how important they are to our communities. Today's episode will take you to a rural community in Kenya and tells the story of struggle and despair turned into hope. You will hear the amazing journey of Fred Milton, who came from this community in Kenya called the Walla. Both found their way to Dartmouth College and then to medical school in the US. It was Fred and Milton's father's dream to open the region's first health clinic. He was instrumental in organizing village elders and convincing them to donate land, resources, and labor to try to make that dream a reality. Tragically, both Fred and Milton's parents died of AIDS while they were studying in the US and before the clinic was built. Fred and Milton resolved to fulfill their father's dream of bringing health to their community. So they finished the clinic and founded Lawala Community Alliance. The themes of today's episode include humanity, community, and connectedness of the globe. And I promise you will leave so inspired and you will learn a lot. Enjoy my conversation with Fred and Milton. Fred and Milton, welcome to the Illuminate podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you for having us. Now, okay, where are you guys calling from? You're each coming from a different place. (laughs) Yes, this is Milton. I'm calling in from St. Louis, Missouri, and... And this is Fred, and I'm calling in from Cleveland, Ohio. Okay. Cleveland. So you guys kind of ended up in the Midwest, huh? Yeah. All these Midwest nice people. (laughs) It's good people in the Midwest. That's for sure. Good people, good values. It's the place to be. Yeah. Okay. I like it. All right. Now, okay. So Fred and Milton, you're brothers, and you're obviously not from Ohio or Missouri. <laughs> no. Tell me where you guys are from. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Fred and I are uh, siblings. We, we have um, uh, two other brothers and two sisters. We grew, we both grew up in a small rural village in Western Kenya called Lawala, L-W-A-L-A. And uh, it's been quite a journey. It's a small uh village in Kenya. We grew up with no electricity and no running water. 
Um, and it's been quite a journey to get us from uh, that small rural village to where we are right now. Wow. Okay. So what order are you guys in of your siblings? Milton is number two and I'm number three. Okay. Uh, yeah. And after me, there are two girls and then the youngest is a boy. Okay. And now are you the only two in the U.S.? No, actually... Um, all my siblings, all our siblings are here in the U.S. except for Omondi, who's the oldest, our oldest brother. He's in Kenya with his family. And then uh, um, Milton, the second and uh, second oldest, and then Fred, the third oldest. And then um, our other two uh, sisters, uh, Florence Ochieng, is uh, in uh, um, Orlando, Florida, as a nurse practitioner. So it's much warmer over there. And then uh, Grace, Grace Uchiang is a nurse in uh, Syracuse. And then our youngest brother, Solomon, is freezing up in the, uh, <laughs> in the northeast in Syracuse. Okay, so this is a family of health practitioners. Uh, and teachers. And teachers, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so both, you know, both parents were teachers. Um, and I think... We have somehow, most of us have ended up doing a little bit of teaching. Even Milton and I did some teaching in high school, briefly in Kenya, right before we came to the U.S. And now the oldest, Omondi, is also a teacher. Uh, so it's, it's healthcare and um, teaching. Okay. So now yeah. I've been to Kenya a number of times. I've never been to the community that you're from but you just said no running water, no electricity. Tell me a little bit about what's, a, what's the daily life like there? Oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, it's a whole lot of fun. Um, it's very communal, and um, most people, it's, it's a farming peasant, uh, farm, farming community. Most people, um, you know, wake up, you know, around six or sometimes five <laughs> Five in the morning when the rooster crows and you got to get up and uh, you go out to um, either weed crops, maize or corn, or people go to cut sugarcane and or you go to plow your land. So all my siblings, we all grew up doing a lot of farm work. And that was part of what our mom um, inculcated in us, really hard work, which I guess now kind of... Um, uh, work works well with where we are in the Midwest, but uh, <laughs> anyway, a lot of farming in the village, and that was really the the live livelihood, the the means of um, uh, uh, raising a family and growing crops, and so that's what we did uh, when we were growing up. Everybody in the village, you know, owns owns some piece of land, it's something that they've uh, inherited from their families. And it's been passed down uh, to the families. And that is how the community um, sustains itself. And most people don't really have a job where they go, you know, where they're employed. It's really, you just grow your corn, beans, maize. You got cows, goats, sheep. It's, it's very um, uh, communal uh, peasant farming community. So, yeah, in the, you know, growing up, it would be you go to to do all the hard work in the farm in the morning, which we were not very thrilled about. Um, 
and then usually around lunchtime you are back home you take your cows to go water them in the in the nearby river river riana so we would go water the cows go swim in the river and then we were expected to go take the cows out to the pasture which we thought was a little boring so you you brought a football to kick while you were out uh, grazing the cows um, and then in the afternoon you would also try to sneak in some time to go play to go play football made out of uh, plastic um, plastic paper uh, and then there would be village teams so you you form teams with other kids in the village so that was probably our favorite pastime in the in the afternoon kicking around football in uh, without any shoes and you just form teams and you have fun and you know when you when your neighbors invite you over for you just follow their kids around and you kind of go eat wherever there's good food so it, uh, it's quite communal as Milton, as Milton mentioned so uh, you know you don't you don't have to come back to eat at your parents house because you find yourself at your neighbor's house that's where you'll be eating and you eventually end up in the in in your homestead in the evening bring the cows back home and dinner time late in the evening usually people eat late like 9 10 p.m and then you are ready to do it again the following day i love the communal aspect what's a typical meal what would you be eating <laughs> so the the food there, you know, most people grow their. As Milton said, we you grow your maize, you grow your beans, sweet potatoes. So much of the food is harvested in your local gardens. Uh, but aside from that, there's fish uh, that you could get from the from the local market. So there are market days, you know, different markets, different market days. So. Uh, your parents know where to send you or they go to get some food from the market. So fish or um, um, other things, beans that you could get from the market if it's not the season when you had those kinds of foods available, eggs and such things. Chicken was expensive and only for special occasions. So days when you had a guest coming to visit you or... uh, special holidays that's when you would be chasing chickens to to slaughter (laughs) Um, beef is also expensive so that was also really just for special occasions so you know much of our proteins really was from plants um, eggs uh, probably uh, the least expensive if you compare to chicken and uh, and beef and then there was uh, this type of fish we call it omena sardines tiny little fish which other people from either outside the country or other parts of kenya really don't they're not big fans of this tiny little fish but it's kind of the (laughs) the mainstay of of our protein for most of the people who live close to the lake Hmm. Um, so yeah that that fish was relatively cheap and Lots of people, that was kind of the protein that, 
many people could easily afford, you get that from the markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we never really liked eating omena or the sardines. <laughs> it was, was never our favorite. And then the other the other food that was uh, pretty common was the, uh, we called it sukumawiki, which is uh, kale. And uh, again, growing up as kids, we never really liked it. And so going back to the whole communal uh, thing, as a kid, if you knew your mom was making omena or sardines, and you would kind of sniff around and try to figure out, you know, what the other kids' parents were making. And if they happened to be uh, making, cooking eggs or meat, or some form of meat, then on that day you would just sort of, you know, wander off to your neighbor's house. And the, the reality was whenever one was cooking, it was expected that you would cook a little extra just for any potential um, kids, families, or anybody else who would who showed up at your door. If somebody showed up at your door and you're eating, it is uh, common courtesy and it is expected that you invite that person to eat, even if you hadn't necessarily prepared food uh, for them. So there isn't really this, you know, uh, very Western idea of RSVP. <laughs> <laughs> As a kid, we, uh, you know, I, I never, we never really RSVP'd at all. You just, you just sort showed of, up. You, you just use your nose and figure out where the good food is, and you showed up, and the other moms have to feed you. <laughs> I love that. That's great. So you described what you did during the day to help with the crops and animals, but you both were in school. Correct. So did you do all that work in the morning, and then you went to school? So it was a so it was a mix. So when we were, we both went to boarding school in fifth grade. Okay. Uh, or at least I did. Fred, I don't remember when you went to boarding. Yeah, school. I ended up going to boarding school in sixth grade. Six, yes. Yeah. So you know, um, kindergarten through um, you know second, third, fourth, uh, fourth grade, we pretty much were in the village. So, you know, in the morning you did your morning daily chores, uh, including um, mopping up the floor, taking out the cows, uh, fetching water, starting a fire, uh, cooking teas and chai. Um, And it was a sort of a rotating um, set of chores. So somebody did one today and mom kind of just kind of divided up the chores. So you got your chores done, got breakfast, and then you, you know, made sure that you're in school, uh, by, um, 8 AM. And then, um, you did school. And then at the end of the, in the evening, I mean, so you came back for lunch and, uh, uh, around 1245 PM. And then you'd make another fire, um, you know, from scratch and have to cook your food. And then you needed to be back in school for the afternoon classes by 2 p.m. Um, and then again, you'd that would go until around 3.45 p.m., around 4 p.m. And then you had uh, what were called games. Um, so, you know, most people would play football or soccer, but there are other things running. They call it athletics or you'd go uh, cross country, they'd send all the kids out to go run. And in the uh, second uh, second term, um, which was the, called the run, so-called the running season, uh, all the kids would wake up. You'd wake up at 5 a.m. 
you go for Fred. How long was that that run up to Sari? <laughs> was it like five kilometers or something? Yeah, it's 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 a, yeah of because uh, yeah, Sari, you know, they're the shorter routes and then there's the longer one, so they would mix it up. Either way, it's it's painful. Yes. So you <laughs> all all the kids in the school, you had to run, and then when you got to an aforementioned uh, spot, there was a they would give everybody a number. So you'd pick your number, to, so you'd make sure that every you know they would keep track of who showed up for the run and who did not. And if you if you skipped the run, uh, you would you would you would get a um, a little lashing in the at school. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so everybody that's why the Kenyans are some of the fastest runners, right? Hey, you know it starts when you're young. You got right? to run in the morning, and then they would be running in the evening too. So, oh my goodness. Uh, it was it was quite something, but anyway. So we did all of those activities uh, interspersed uh, in between throughout the day, and then at the end of the day as well. But especially also on the weekends, those were you know some brutal um, farm working days, and then of course uh, during the holidays. So when we started going to boarding school, uh, we would come back, and then it would be a lot of helping in the in the community in the um, in the farms, and my you know, my mom's mantra was, she said, even though we, you know, she wanted all of us to go school, go to school, uh, my uh, sisters included. And uh, she made sure that they too got just the same education that we, uh, the boys got. But she said she wanted to make sure that even though we were going to school, she didn't, she did not want us to be some spoiled brats. So she wanted to make sure that we could do any and everything that all the kids in the village were doing. So if all the kids were plowing the fields, fetching firewood, uh, taking the, uh, the, the cows and goats and sheep off to the farms and cutting sugarcane, we learned how to do all of that stuff. And then you still needed to do well in school. Sure. So she was, now, she was tough. <laughs> was it common for people from your community go, to go to boarding school or were you guys a bit of an exception? Probably a bit of an exception. Uh, majority of the kids went to the local school. Um, so there were a few kids. And typically, you know, if if your parents had um, jobs outside of the village, so say your parents were working in the bigger cities, then um, kids could follow them, you know, with the rest of the family to go to school outside of the village. So, you know, when we were growing up, it was, it was, we were really the exception. There were a few other uh, families that had their kids going to boarding school, but majority of the kids went to the local schools. Um, and, you know, that in effect, it so happened that, you know, there are kids who do well in the, in the local public schools and would um, qualify for good schools after taking the eighth grade comprehensive examinations but typically there there were more opportunities uh, at the boarding school you know it's there the facilities that are available you are focused really just on your schoolwork because you know in the evening we didn't have to worry about going to fetch firewood fetch water sure. or all these other distractions so 
traditionally people who were able to go to boarding schools, um, they they ended up typically doing better than their kids in public school. Not to say mm-hmm. that people didn't do well in public schools. Mm-hmm. The, and the other thing, Kristen, there is, um, you know, both both uh, parents, you know, mom being an elementary school teacher and dad being a high school chemistry teacher, they really um, valued education. Uh, when we were growing up, my classmates, uh, you know, the kids uh, with whom I went to Luala Primary School, most kids really didn't have too much to look uh, forward to. I mean, most people saw their lives, uh, you know, in the prism of, you know, when it was done, they would become, you know, farm the local um, uh, land that was handed down from grandparents and parents. And the few people in the community that dreamt um, a, a, a bit of, you know, better things, you know, was, you know, becoming a teacher. I think that was about as, uh, you know, uh, big of a dream as people had. And then, of course, the reality being that, you know, going to boarding school uh, required extra cash. And so what my parents did was they saved their salaries from uh, their um, teaching, uh, government teaching jobs. And then uh, the way that they fed us and raised the family was we did that through uh, working and tilling the farms. So that was that was sort of their way of making sure that they get, they got us, um, you know, quality education, uh, while at the same time um, exposing us to the community and um, making us realize that uh, the community was an uh, Lualak village was an important part of our growing up. That's amazing. Your parents sound incredible. They're wonderful indeed. So how did you get from boarding schools? Now, you both went to Dartmouth. Correct. Okay, so I want to hear this story. Tell me how how did you get there? How did you even know about Dartmouth in Lawala, from Lawala, Kenya? So that's uh, this is Milton. So that that's actually a, a really um, interesting journey. So, you know, in fifth grade, um, my dad, my dad was um, teaching at in CI in a, in a school called Barding Secondary School. And so he dragged me over there uh, to a local primary school. And then he found me uh, a boarding school called Derry Boys Boarding School. And in order to join fifth, he wanted me to join fifth grade but I just completed fifth grade in my local primary school. And so they made me retake fifth grade, even though I was the best student in my school, uh, in my village school. So I was actually not happy about uh, having to retake fifth grade, even though I'd, I'd been the best student in my local primary school. And honestly, at that time, I thought my parents were being really mean to me. <laughs> and I remember crying and being ho- uh, homesick uh, but now in hindsight, um, you know, that uh, that one decision uh, changed my life, among other, you know, other things that my parents did for me. But it goes to show, you know, that as kids, we don't know what's going on. Um, and so just by me being put in that boarding school, I ended up doing really well at uh, the boarding school. And when it got to eighth grade, I, I was the top student at my 
primary school and in my whole district, in Siaya district. And so in, in Kenya, all the students take, it's called the KCPE, uh, Kenya Certificate of Primary Education. And based on how well you do on that exam, they end up picking the, uh, the top uh, students. So they pick the top two students from each of the districts or counties, and then they put them together into national schools. So almost like a magnet school. And so I was uh, selected to join Alliance High School uh, in Kikuyu, uh, Kenya, which is about 24 kilometers from Nairobi. It's one of the oldest, most prestigious high schools in Kenya. And that was a big deal in my village. I was the first person from my high school to, I mean, from my village, Loala, to join Alliance High School. Ah, okay. Yeah. And so, and then Fred, uh, on his, on his, you know, on his own, uh, decided, uh, and, you know, Fred joined a boarding school um, after, a, a separate boarding school, and he did really well as well. And he became the second person from my village to be selected to join Alliance High School. So we both went to Alliance High School. Um, and while we were at Alliance High School, um, Alliance High School has traditionally sent uh, several of its students to the U.S. So that some of the top students from Alliance High School so we had alumni from my high school who had come to the U.S. and attended uh, several Ivy League schools, uh, Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, etc. And that is how I got, I heard first about, um, you know, Dartmouth, Alliance, uh, Dartmouth Harvard, etc. When I was in my second, uh, second year of high school in uh, Alliance in Kenya, I was selected uh, to represent my high school in an exchange program with Brooks School in North Andover, Massachusetts. And that was a big, big deal uh, because it was, again, then I became the first person from my village to uh, ever um, travel, get on a plane. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was your first uh, plane ride, right? Correct. Okay. So first person on a plane, first person to go to the U.S., first, so a lot of firsts. And so that's how I first came to the U.S. on that exchange program uh, and uh, saw snow for the first time. And then while I was in Boston, I was, um, we had several of uh, my high school uh, alumni who were in the Boston area at Harvard and they invited uh, MIT, they invited us over uh, to spend a night to see, you know, kind of do a mini college tour. That was the first time in my life that I ever uh, pulled an all-nighter because they put me in front of a computer for the first time at MIT in their lab. And you can imagine wow. a village kid seeing computer for the first time at MIT and all those lights and all these college students. I thought, oh, my goodness, this is the best place on earth. <laughs> I said, oh, I'm coming back to America. <laughs> so that's that's how I got interested in the idea of coming back to America. And when I came back to the to Kenya, I took my exams, SATs, uh, test, TOEFL, test of English as a foreign language. And I did well. I passed. And then I, I was selected to um, to join Dartmouth College. That's amazing. Now, you got a scholarship to Dartmouth. Correct. Okay. But you still had to get there. Correct. So, 
So I became the first person in my high school who was uh, accepted to college in the U.S. into an Ivy League college for that matter. And so my dad was super excited. I was thrilled. Uh, my siblings were excited as well. And I mean, everybody in the village just couldn't believe it. Uh, the problem was um, my dad could not afford the $900 ticket to uh, to buy me the ticket to, to bring me to the U.S. And so, again, going back to that uh, sense of uh, community, uh, my dad organized and got everybody in the village uh, to come together. Uh, they sold their chickens, cows, goats, sheep, etc., and they bought me the $900 ticket uh, to uh, send me to the U.S., on that day, it was a you know momentous occasion. They sat me down and they said, you know, you know what it's like living in this village, and in, you know the struggles we've had, and now we're sending you to America to become a physician. Uh, make sure you don't forget about us. Make sure you come back. And so, on that, I still remember that uh, occasion, and that was how. I got the idea that I really wanted to make sure that I did not let down my community and I wanted to make sure that at some point, I didn't know how it was going to happen, but I made a commitment that I wanted to give back to our, uh, our community. That's amazing that they all came together to support you traveling there and selling much of their livelihood. Correct. And in fact, the... The teacher, a family friend, um, Mr. Duar, who agreed to be the guest of honor, I still remember he basically gave up his whole month's, he was, he was a teacher, he gave up his whole month's salary wow. and put it towards my education. And, you know, this is somebody who, sure, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a kid in the village, I'm a, a, a you know, of his family friends. But not necessarily his kid, but to me, I still remember that, and those are some of the things that really kind of push me because I think somebody in this village, people in this village, um, sacrificed and invested in us, and they wanted the best for us, and so they wanted us to succeed, and so when I've you know, succeeded in becoming a physician, then I feel this uh, sincere obligation and heartfelt uh, need to give back to the community and not only to Mr. Duar. Uh, my goal is to then subsequently give to the other children and set an example to them so that they too can someday um, feel it in their hearts to want to give back to our community. Okay, I want to dig into that. But Fred, now I want to know how you got to the U.S. <laughs> no, so yeah, I went to a different boarding school in in Homerbay. Homerbay is a is a town at the lakeside. Um, the boarding school was called Sango Academy. So I was there sixth grade through eighth grade, and you know. As Milton mentioned, Alliance High School, very competitive. Um, they they did well in their, you know, fourth year, um, kind of the 12th grade national examinations in the country. So, you know, they, every year after the 
comprehensive exams. They publish how each school did. And, you know, Alliance produced some, some great leaders in the country anyway. So finding out that Milton had qualified to go to Alliance. So I also had my eyes set on going to that high school. So upon finishing uh, school, then I applied to go to Alliance. And, you know, being at Alliance High School was just an, an eye-opening place. Very competitive. You know, I used to be the best kid in my primary school. And then you go to Alliance and in your class of 185 or so people, it is so competitive. You, you become number one today. Next semester, you are thrown off to like number five, number 10. So... Competition was very rigorous. The teachers were excellent. Um, you know, of course, you do sports, you do classwork. So very intense training. Um, so at the end of, you know, by the time I got to um, 11th grade, then you start thinking about college. Um, and you take your national exams at the end of 12th grade. By then, you've applied for whether you are going to professional schools or if you want to become a teacher or whatever else. And you will qualify depending on how well you do in your national examinations. So actually, both Melton and I had, um, we applied for medicine. We'd both been accepted to the Nairobi School of Medicine. Mm, um, okay. And... Back then, it used to be that you would finish high school, then it would be about two years before you join uh, college. Nowadays, they've, um, you can actually finish and join the same year. Uh, but anyway, so after sitting for the, both the national exams and we qualified to go to uh, Nairobi School of Medicine, but then also did the college admission tests um, and applied for, applied for colleges in the U.S. Now, unlike Milton, I'd never visited the U.S., so I truly was just applying blindly. I'd been reviewing the college, uh, college handbooks, and that might seem to occupy this interesting place. You know, I would read about top 10 schools uh, with good college food, Top ten schools with, uh, <laughs> with you know the different characteristics, and you know you may fall for that. You it may end up not working out so well, but that's that's the kind of ranking I had to work with. Um, but you know, I think kind of what pushed it to the next level was seeing some of the pictures that Milton sent when he was at Dartmouth. Um, pictures of him playing soccer in front of the in front of the library at the um, there's an open quadrangle where people would play frisbee and pick up soccer and pictures from there in the in the summer going to the fall were most beautiful so anyway I I loved the place even before I showed up um, so sent my application got in early decision and I remember the day I got my uh, I got my letter in sometime December beginning of January and being so elated 
and found out I received a scholarship. Um, so it was just, it was very exciting to find out that I was going to come to college in the, in the U.S. and join Melton. You know, we'd been, we'd gone to the same kindergarten uh, where <laughs> people used to call us twins, so two little fish. Uh, <laughs> in high school where they would call us photocopies. And so here we were about to join, um, to join together in this uh, journey, uh, going to school in the U.S., which, you know, was, was just amazing to, to be in a place where you've never been and to have family around. Um, so the advantage to me was I, I had somebody to look up to, somebody who knew how things worked, so I wasn't going to be thrown in the middle of nowhere <laughs> without without any guidance. So, yeah, it was very exciting when I found out that I would be joining joining Melton at Dartmouth. That's great. And then you both went on to medical school. Yeah, and uh, I think, you know, the decision to, at least for me, thinking about why we chose to go to medical school, you know, growing up in, uh, in Loala, uh, as Melton mentioned, aspirations of becoming a teacher. I don't think we knew of one of my cousins studied to become an engineer. So there weren't many other professions. Now, looking at medicine or kind of what made us think of medicine, you know, growing up in a place with no running water, no electricity, uh, when we would get sick with malaria and we would have we would have to swallow chloroquine pills, which were would be obtained from the same local store where you buy your sugar, your soap. And my dad had this book called Where There Is No Doctor. Uh, so although he was a teacher, he had this book that he had at home, and we would he would read it, and we also got interested in in reviewing this book. So days when we couldn't take chloroquine pills, then he would ask my mother to to sterilize the needle and the syringe so we could get chloroquine injections. Still don't know how he learned to how he learned to administer injections because his dad was a, a vet, so my grandpa was a vet. So I still don't know how my dad knew how to <laughs> how to inject. <laughs> but anyway, it wasn't where there's no doctor. Well, probably that's where, yeah, I think they, it was such a good book, such a good book. Um, and so he would administer injections. So, you know, we knew of challenges where the closest place where you could get healthcare in the village really was uh, over 20 kilometers from home. And to get there, if you are in trouble, you would have to be, you know, if you can't walk, you'd have to be put on the back of a bicycle about six or so miles of unpaved roads. Then you get to the main road and you wait for public transportation. Then you hopefully make it to the, make it to the, to the regional hospitals. Uh, so there were no, there was no local hospital in the village. Uh, and, you know, Growing up, we, you know, some of the tragic consequences of 
not having access to healthcare, like when one of our one of our neighbors, um, his name is Ben, mother was in labor, I uh, think got obstructed, um, so the villagers went and borrowed the wheelbarrow from the local um, local uh, local primary school teacher, the same guy who had been um, organizing or helping with the fundraising for Milton's um, trip to the U.S. So they borrowed his wheelbarrow and they were transporting uh, this lady at night to try get her down the unpaved road so she could get emergency obstetric care. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, she bled, she died. Mm -hmm. Um, The following morning, we woke up, you know, villagers are wailing and um, unfortunately there was this now the mother is dead, the unborn child and you know so lack of access to healthcare had tragic consequences so uh, you know I think knowing that we loved sciences, my dad the chemist would bring home the, some of the reagents were making some of the things we learned in class. We would be making chlorine gas out in the village. So, and also knowing that we had the book to read about medicine. So, to me, it felt like there was this really direct connection between the needs of the village, application of science, and how medicine could hopefully one day we could bring medicine to help our village. And did you? (laughs) 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 Yeah. So, you know, that, that story that uh, Fred mentions, um, Ben was our, our, you know, friend when we were growing up and, you know, for me losing Seeing Ben's mom uh, bleed to death in a wheelbarrow uh, was life-changing. And seeing uh, Ben's unborn uh, sibling, um, you know, on, at the funeral and the burial ceremony the next day, it was, it was very um, uh, touching. And that was one of the reasons that uh, this time went by made me want to become a doctor. And so fast forward, um, when we were... At Dartmouth, um, our own parents fell ill, and um, as a senior at Dartmouth in 2004, as I was getting ready, taking my last classes uh, before graduation, that was when I found out, um, and uh, you know, luckily Fred was with me uh, at Dartmouth, but it was really hard when we found out that our mom had passed away from complications of HIV and AIDS. Oh. And, you know, being so far away from, uh, from home uh, was devastating. Um, we had been, um, you know, sending money uh, back home to help, uh, but she just, she never made it. We did not have antiretroviral uh, medications, uh, which are medicines for treatment of HIV. We did not have those in the village. And so she just did not have access to any of the care that she needed. And unfortunately, she passed away. And did you know that she 
was HIV positive prior to that? You know, we so th this was, and again, I remember I was taking biochemistry at that time, and you know, I was not a medical student, uh, but I I was a biochemistry major, and I remember uh, talking to my dad and. He kept mentioning that my dad, my mom had Klebsiella pneumonia and kept getting all these infections. And I, I sort of started questioning about her immune system, but I did not really know necessarily. We did not know that my mom had HIV mm. and only found out after we went back home to collect her body. That's when the, the doctor pulled us aside and uh, confirmed our worst fear. Um, and she was, her body had wasted away uh, significantly. Um, she looked a lot like, you know, for me as a nine-year-old, um, so my mom's, one of my mom's oldest sisters had also passed away from HIV AIDS um, in 1991, uh, you know, almost a decade or 15, 15 years earlier. And I remember when my aunt was ill, my mom took us on this long journey to go visit with her in Kochia, which is in, uh, in Homa Bay. And it was a really heart-wrenching trip for me as, um, as an eight-year-old uh, to see uh, my aunt you know, really sick, wasting away. She was as thin as could be, and she had no means of uh, supporting herself, uh, no medications whatsoever. And that was, you know, one of the first, you know, people that I'd seen as an eight-year-old um, experiencing uh, death. And that was my maternal aunt. And so when I went, you know, we went back home with, with Fred uh, for the funeral and with my other siblings, and they were, you know, the doctor pulled us aside and, you know, told us, and that was the first time that we as a family found out that my mom had HIV and AIDS. It was really difficult, um, a very difficult uh, revelation. And then also knowing at that very moment that uh, my dad uh, was going to be, um, that we needed to do something to try and save my dad's life. Mm-hmm. But it was it was very um, difficult for us because here we are struggling, just trying to stay afloat uh, with our studies in the U.S., more than seven thousand miles away, and then trying to figure out how to one bury our mom and give her uh, a send off. Um, and the previous December, I had been home for uh, to visit with her. And I, I, you know, I knew she was, you know, she was ailing a little bit here and there, but I didn't know that that was going to be the last time I'd see her. Oh. Um, and that was a, that was a very difficult um, one of these times where you look back and you sort of wish if I had known, if I had known things, if I, mm -hmm. I would have done things differently. And that was certainly one of my biggest regrets in saying when I was saying goodbye to my parents. At that time, I didn't know that that was the last time I would be seeing them. Um, and and so if, um, you know, finding out that both of, uh, you know, finding out that my mom had uh, died from HIV, you know, as siblings, then, you know, 
going through the burial and then coming right back uh, to the U.S. for, um, you know, to try and I had to finish my biochemistry semester, otherwise I, would, I wouldn't uh, be able to join medical school. And uh, I think, Fred, you had, you had your tests. I think that you were studying for tests on that flight. So that was really difficult. Um, but anyway, so we came back and there was really an outpouring of, uh, of love uh, from the community at Dartmouth. And Fred and I had both coached um, little kids in soccer, um, kindergarten and the first, second grade in the whole Upper, uh, Upper Valley community in uh, New Hampshire and Vermont. And so while we were doing those soccer clinics, uh, the little kids uh, um, learned about an article that Fred had done with our uh, soccer coach, the Dartmouth soccer coach, um, uh, Jeff Cook. And it featured uh, Fred and myself and the coach and the the work that we were doing in the Upper Valley. And so the kids really had an outpouring of love and they said they wanted to raise money to help Coach Fred and Coach Milton uh, build, build, to build a clinic for our village. Wow. And it was... It was powerful to see that these children believed in what we wanted to do. And at that time, I'd been talking to my dad um, and I told him that we wanted to build a hospital in the village. And so these kids um, organized Penny Wars to raise money to help us build the, the clinic. And it was, they, they raised $2,000, $3,000 doing penny wars between the different schools and classes. Um, and that was just very touching. Um, and, you know, there's so many things about um, the interconnectedness and the global world um, and really just the humanity. And so we talk about the community and the life being so communal in Luala village. It was, and it is communal uh, in some respects here in the U.S. too, in terms of um, people's hearts and people who have a giving heart. And you don't have to be from a rural village in sub-Saharan Africa to um, feel for the suffering. Suffering is um, is a human. Um, is, suffering is human. So whether you're in rural Kenya, you're in rural Vermont or New Hampshire, you do feel when other people suffer. And so they they um, put together their, they empty their piggy banks. And Fred, you want to share about the, the kid with the piggy bank? Yeah, this was, I think what? One was maybe about six. Uh, there were there were siblings, but anyway, they emptied their piggy banks. They hand wrote this note. They drew they drew their sketch of their clinic, <laughs> just saying, uh, "We hope this we we hope this money will help you uh, build a clinic to help your village." I I saved I saved that. 
picture. I mean, I saved that letter and um, it's just one of these inspiring things by, uh, by these kids. Um, and, you know, when here we were, we are thinking of building a clinic to bring healthcare closer to people in our village who are suffering, including our parents. And, you know, we see the, we see the obstacles. Um, Milton's advisors see the obstacles in this big dream, but we have no funding, we have no training, we have no background, we, <laughs> we have nothing, um, but we have the dream. And see that, you know, the, the people who start contributing and sharing in our suffering, as Milton is saying, are these little kids. And it's just such a, heart such a heartwarming experience. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was just a coalition of the global village coming together, whether it's kids who are doing penny wars, kids who are giving up money or gifts from their birthday uh, parties to contribute to our cause. Um, our professors who knew us at Dartmouth. I mean, people people we'd never, we didn't even know were just writing checks and sending them over. Uh, and so that was kind of the beginning of this um, outpouring of support to join us in our dream um, to build this clinic in the village. So you yeah. built, so you got the funding to build the clinic. Were, were you, you guys over there helping do this? What did that look like? So, I mean, the, the timing of it. So unfortunately, so about a year and a half after our mother dies, then I think Milton, were you in med first year, first year of med school. Oh, so you had a lot of free time on your hands, right? Yeah, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Your free time in med yeah. school. And I was getting ready to. I was just about to graduate college when we got news that our dad had died. Um, and so here we were. We haven't even broken ground to build a clinic, and you know. If we were guilty that we felt we had been so far away and had not been able to help our mother when she was sick, now here we are again, uh, you know, a second heartbreak, losing our dad before we had even broken ground to build a clinic. Uh, you know, he on the ground he had set to he had set up a committee of the villagers. They they had been working on some of the logistics of where it is that um, the clinic would be built. Um, they, they came up with an estimate of how much it would take to build, to build the clinic. Uh, Milton, you want to share some more? Yeah. You, so are, you are the man of log logistics and I was the man of fundraising. <laughs> okay, yeah. good. You both had a role. I love it. Yes. <laughs> so I, what happened was um, as a sophomore in college at Dartmouth, I got to participate in a, an exchange program through uh, the Dartmouth Service Group, Taka Foundation. And we went to Nicaragua 
And while we were in Nicaragua, we built a women and children's uh, clinic. And while I was there, it uh, dawned on me that, because uh, I saw a lot of things in Nicaragua that reminded me of my rural village in uh, Kenya and Luala. And so when I came back, I was really excited. And I talked to some of my professors and advisors and I said, hey, you know, we, we just built this, we raised money and built a uh, hospital, women's and children's uh, hospital clinic in uh, Nicaragua. Why can't we just do that uh, also for my village? And so I remember uh, writing to my dad and telling him about this clinic that we'd built in Nicaragua. And that's how he and I kind of started talking about um, you know, working on the logistics uh, in the village. And so he got some of the village elders and village representatives and they would meet and, you know, hash out where the clinic would be located, et cetera, et cetera. A month before the uh, groundbreaking ceremony is uh, when my dad died. Um, it was Cinco de Mayo. I remember my last exam of first year of medical school. I was thrilled and uh, everybody else was going out to celebrate, you know, such a big milestone. And then for me, it was a big, big, big downer when I found out um, uh, through a text message that my dad had passed away. Um, leading up to that, um, we... We knew that he was not, uh, he was having a hard time getting uh, the antiretrovirals, uh, the medications for HIV. And Fred and I had been working at Dartmouth uh, doing odd jobs, working as, you know, some at the library um, and saving uh, extra money at the gym, uh, $7 an hour, and every single cent that we saved, we sent home so that we, they could get my dad to uh, the private wing of the hospital because the main public hospital, uh, people were sharing beds. Uh, you'd have one patient with their head facing one way and the other patient with the head facing the other way because there were not enough beds. And so for uh, 300, uh, Fred, was it 300 uh, a week? Uh, something like that. Uh, we could get my my dad um, extra uh, sort of a private wing where he could be taken care of and uh, where they were trying to give him his uh, medications. Um, my dad got, um, he decided uh, by himself that he did not want to be a burden to Fred or myself. And so he felt that he was we were having to work too hard to send uh, money to get him the healthcare that he needed. And so he quit taking his medications, uh, but he did not tell us, he did not tell anybody. Ugh. And unfortunately, I think that was one of the main reasons why my dad um, uh, quickly deteriorated from there. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the toughest thing was after he passed away, I remember my, the dean of the medical school, uh, Dean Rogers, called me, the dean of students, and he said, um, do you want to, because after the first year of medical school at Vanderbilt, uh, all the med, first year med students were required to do a project, uh, either like a research project or uh, some global health project. And my project at that time was, I said, I'm going to build, uh, you know, with the help of my brother, Fred, we're going to build a clinic in our home village where we grew up. 
Um, and even though my, my professors uh, thought it was quite a, an overly ambitious idea, they were very supportive. Um, so, but they, you know, the dean called me in and said, do you still want to do your project or do you want to take some time off? And I said, you know, for his, my dad had been helping us uh, arrange things. And so for his sake, we wanted to, um, you know, plow on and continue with this work. And if, if for nothing else, build it in his memory and in his honor. And so when we flew uh, back to Kenya for the funeral, um, you know, that was the first time that we announced to the village that we wanted to build a clinic in the village uh, in honor of uh, my father and uh, in honor of my parents in order to um, allow the community to get the care that they needed. And I think both Fred and I realized at the time that, you know, um, the situation was dire. Uh, we had over a million uh, HIV uh, AIDS orphans in Kenya, and uh, very quickly, all six of us had joined that new group of uh, HIV AIDS orphans in Kenya, and we wanted um, to do something about it, to give our village hope, and to turn that uh, scourge around. Um, and so, we, you know, we, I think Fred had several of his uh, Dartmouth friends come over that summer to help volunteer. And we, we uh, broke ground um, a, a few weeks later. And uh, Fred's uh, friends from Dartmouth class of 2005 and a lot of soccer players came over. And we, together with the village, um, uh, young men and women. The women were fetching water. The young men were using oxen to dredge sand out of the river and to bring bricks and working with the local masons. And uh, uh, we started building the clinic in Luala. Amazing. Wow. And so tell me, um, tell me what it is today. So you've built this clinic, but it's much bigger than that now. Yeah, I mean, so the clinic opened up in April of 07, and, you know, initially it was one building. It has it has been serving people, and quickly you serve people, and then you realize there are many other unmet needs. So somewhere around 2010, 2011, we started campaigning. You know, that's around the time when we were making a commitment to address uh, maternal child deaths. Um, so we decided to create uh, a space where women could deliver their babies. You know, when we started working in Lowala, we knew that about 25% of mothers would deliver their babies under the care of a skilled provider. And our goal was to increase those numbers so together with um, some volunteers some OBGYN friends from uh, the Dartmouth the Upper Valley area who came to work with the villagers uh, you know formed partnerships with the local um, with the local traditional bath attendants um, they formed a group called Mama Salama 
safe motherhood. So sharing ideas, you know, teaching about um, what are the danger signs to watch out for in obstetric care, and really just changing the changing the attitudes of the folks in the village about seeking care. But before you, we did that, you know, we, or I should say, as we worked with them in terms of changing, um, changing perceptions and influencing health-seeking behaviors, we also needed to create space where people could come deliver their babies. So that was kind of the initial expansion. And, you know, after a few years, after the expansion, incorporating the traditional birth attendants as part of the team that cares for the, cares for the mothers. And this is also as we expanded our community health, health worker network, then we started seeing numbers going up. Um, you know, they mapped out all the pregnant women in the in the area in our catchment area. The traditional birth attendants would uh, also get in touch with the women in the village because now they were part of the team that's delivering care. And so the the word was, we now deliver our babies in a healthcare facility. So then we started seeing numbers going up and um, we've been sustaining above 95, 97% of all, um, of all mothers delivering their babies under the care of a skilled provider. Uh, so that's, that's part of the maternal child health, the public, the public health outreach that we have been doing, you know, whether it comes to increasing, increasing the absorption of, of uh, immunizations in the community, you know, going up from just about 50, 60 percent to uh, we are we are we are above 90 percent of um, the the crucial immunization coverage, and that is through partnership with the with the local Ministry of Health, uh, because as we receive the vaccines, but we have such a strong community health outreach, then we can mobilize, we can get the vaccines to the communities. Uh, so, you know, I think the public health outreach, um, maternal child health, those have been some of the some of the key impacts that we have had um, in the community just in the past several years that we've been we've been working in the area. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, you know we've 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 come a long ways, um, and we now we've had, um, like Fred was saying getting 97% of our 98% of women delivering under under the care of a, a skilled attendant and you know over the last uh, decade we've had a significant um, decrease in uh, under five mortality we had a program uh, we've had a program called thrive through five where we uh, we're saying every child deserves a fifth birthday and when we started off, we had 105 um, 
or so children dying for every 1,000 live births. And most recently, our numbers uh, have uh, um, declined significantly through the work of the community health workers. Uh, we now have 29 uh, out of 1,000 uh, children who, uh, who are dying. So we've cut under five mortality by 64%. And um, we've had other uh, significant tangible results, uh, like Fred was saying, getting 97% of our kids who are fully immunized as compared to about 57% for, um, for the local uh, Migori County or local county. And uh, in, in terms of other impacts, we've had this past year um, close to 60,000 uh, patient uh, patient care visits, and we are now um, we've expanded to three sub counties with direct service care to about ninety thousand uh, patients, and we are anticipating that by the end of this year we will have uh, we will be reaching directly one hundred and fifty thousand uh, people, and um, I think. Uh, we are now averaging around 600 babies per year that are being born at our facilities. And um, we continue to um, uh, cut back uh, or cut down on maternal, um, uh, maternal to child HIV transmission. Uh, over the last um, five years, we've uh, maintained upwards of 98 to 99% of uh, kids who were exposed to HIV uh, that tested negative for HIV at 18 months. So what's, what's happening is um, when the, you know, the, the community health workers, they go out into the village, they find the women, uh, when they're pregnant, they try to encourage as many of them as possible to attend at least four prenatal visits or antenatal visits. And right now we are hitting upwards of 80% of those women attending their uh, four prenatal visits. And then the community health workers follow them through um, their prenatal visit, through delivery. And then even after delivery, those kids uh, and the moms are still being followed in the postpartum period, uh, being followed by the community health workers. And this has helped significantly because then, say, for example, if um, there's a pregnant woman who is then diagnosed as having HIV, they're then followed very closely and to ensure that at the time of labor, because that's one of the um, highest risk periods, uh, highest for uh, uh, the greatest risk for transmission of HIV. So they are given intrapartum medications, so medications given IV to help prevent the transmission of the virus. And so we now have this cohort of uh, um, young kids who are uh, being born, uh, and for the first time in our village, um, this cohort of uh, children um, that have the possibility or the prospect of uh, li living HIV-free in an HIV-free world uh, because we are preventing uh, and we want to eliminate transmission of uh, uh, maternal child uh, HIV. And so to think that in uh, such a small rural village where we started off, uh, uh, we're now uh, having such a huge impact uh, in people's lives and in children's lives, uh, it is significant. I have a five-year-old uh, who just, uh, Maddie, she just celebrated her fifth birthday. 
And some of these things are hitting even closer and closer to home because then, you know, I'm seeing, and whenever we take Maddie and Malie back, they go see their uh, friends in the village. And, you know, several of those kids that they are hanging out with uh, a decade ago would not be alive today. And so they have friends that would have passed away why it's not for this hospital. So this hospital is um, making a significant uh, difference, significant impact uh, in the lives of the community. Oh, my goodness. You guys, this is incredible. One of the other exciting uh, partnerships and interventions we are doing, if you recall the story of Ben and his mom who tragically passed away in labor, um, you know, one of the major causes of... Uh, of deaths for mothers around the time they deliver their babies usually is um, bleeding, uh, bleeding around uh, the delivery time. So there's um, some equipment that is being um, tested and seen to improve mortality. Um, so it's, uh, they use, you know, they wrap up the, they wrap up the women uh, use some pressure to uh, use some pressure to try reduce bleeding. Uh, so this it's called the anti-shock garments. So Luala is working with some of the some of the other impl implementers in the area, and so we are working closely with uh, with the Ministry of Health. We are working in our county to make this part of emergency obstetric care. And uh, you talk to folks who are delivering care on the ground and they will tell you they've actually seen these, um, these garments actually saving women's lives. So, you know, we are, we are making a difference um, in partnership with the Ministry of Health and some of the other organizations which are delivering healthcare in our area. Um, and this is quite incredible to see, you know, just several years um, from when the clinic was founded and now has grown to be a much bigger organization. And it is definitely changing lives, you know, bringing hope and uh, really reshaping how we are delivering care in the community. Your dad must be so proud seeing this and seeing his dream and truly changing people's lives so they don't end up in a similar situation. Uh, I'm I'm in awe of what you've built there. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been with a, a lot of help from uh, a lot of people that we've networked with. Um, I just wanted to remind you there was that, you remember, um, I, I want to give you that connection with Jenna. If you if you've got a few more yes <laughs> okay yes so Jenna Nardella which is our second episode two was on the the show so yes Milton go ahead and share about how she's connected to Luala so uh, remember I mentioned about uh, my trip to um, th uh, through Dartmouth College service trip to uh, Nicaragua when I went to that trip um, I met one of the um, the gentleman, one of the colleagues uh, who was at, on that trip was Joel Wickery. Joel Wickery was uh, Dartmouth class of 2003. I was Dartmouth class of 2004. 
And so our paths crossed. We enjoyed the trip together. And then, so afterwards, when I went to medical school and that summer after my dad passed away and I went back to the village to build the hospital, uh, Joel Wickery, out of nowhere that summer, uh, while Fred and I were in the village, you know, building the hospital, he sent me an email saying, hey, I am passing by um, Kenya, Western Kenya, heading to Uganda I'm on the board of Bloodwater Mission, and one of my board members, uh, uh, co-founder of Bloodwater, um, Jenna Nadella, is with me. I'd like to drag her across to come visit your village and show her what you're doing. Is that okay with you? And you know, we being a very community. Remember, I told you about if if you're if you're if your parents are cooking food and. <laughs> They have good food. You're obligated to have your friends just eat and join. So that's how I was brought up in Luala Village. And so I told Joel, hey, you know what? There's always room in the inn. The village is always open. So I told him, yeah, bring Jenna along. We'll have some food, some omena, some sardines for her. Yeah, you got to give her the sardines, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I, I just said, hey, just come on, come on over. And so... He told Jenna to come visit with us in the village and uh, later to find out that Jenna actually did not want to come visit. She just wanted to go do, you know, she wa she had a mission. She was supposed to be going to Uganda. She wanted to go get the stuff done in Uganda. She didn't want to stop by Loala. But, you know, Joel prevailed. So she, she and Joel stopped by our village. We showed her what we were doing, the hospital and the village. And she really enjoyed and uh, was taken... Uh, by what we were doing, and it turned out that Jenna's um, Bloodwater mission was actually based in Nashville, Tennessee, and I was going to Vanderbilt Medical School in Nashville, Tennessee, so a small world. So she said, oh, wow, we're in the same city. So when you come back to the U.S., I, wanna, uh, I want you to meet a few of my friends in Nashville. And so Jenna... Uh, met us in Luala in the village in Kenya, but we were all sort of were, were working in Nashville. So when I came back to Nashville, Joel um, had introduced us to Jenna. Then Jenna uh, introduced us to um, the rest of the Bloodwater Mission crew. And then also um, because we were sort of working in the same uh, sphere. So we were doing... HIV AIDS work, they were doing blood water mission, meaning they were doing a lot of HIV work and also um, drilling wells. And so there was sort of an intersection there and it was wonderful that we were both in the same city. So when I went back, she introduced me to Barry Simmons, who was a local uh, Nashville Channel 5 TV reporter and told him about what we were doing and building a hospital uh, clinic in in, um, in uh, support, uh, in honor of our, our parents. And so uh, Barry listened to our story. He was really excited. And so uh, he ended up quitting his job and started following us around and made a documentary about the work that we were doing called Sons of Loala. Um, it turns out that Jenna also liked the work that we were doing so much so that when the time came for fundraising and we got stuck, we did not have 
uh, money to get the clinic open. We didn't have money for drugs or um, getting our clinicians. Um, and so Jenna got his team at Bloodwater Mission, and they gave us the first $40,000 grant to uh, buy drugs for our clinic and also to employ our first um, uh, our first uh, clinicians. And so that was one of the the most amazing uh, connections, all starting from uh, our trip to Dartmouth with Joel Wickery, who it turned out ended up becoming our first executive director uh, for Luala, the Luala Community Alliance. But then also just, you know, goes to show you that we have a small world and when you open your heart to other people, and my mom always said, you always want to welcome people, be a welcoming person, uh, because when you welcome, when you open your doors to other people, you don't know when an angel might walk through. And this was one of those times that just by saying, sure, come visit us. Let's show what, what, what we, show you what we have. It turned out that Jenna, as luck would have it, would open our doors, um, you know, many, many years uh, later. And that's how we got our first $40,000 that le- helped us open the Loyola Community uh, Hospital. That's amazing. I love that connection. All right, I'm conscious of our time, and so I want to bring us kind of to the end of our time together and would love to ask each of you just to share your message for the world. So this is Milton. Um, My message would be, you know, there there are numerous stories that you hear about uh, sub-Saharan Africa and um, about uh, Kenya or small African villages. And my message um, to people out there is we managed to um, we managed to take a story of despair and um, tragedy and turned it to hope. And with determination and a vision and support from a community, um, we can achieve, together we can achieve um, amazing things. And when I say together, that togetherness of humanity and uh, connectedness uh, of the globe, we live in a small world. And so that connectedness of the, um, the globe uh, can help us achieve tremendous um, results. And because of the work and because of the coming together of people in Luala, coming together of people uh, here in the U.S. and globally, and the network of uh, people that have uh, supported us, we have transformed and continue to transform the lives of the people of Luala. So do not give up if life dishes you um, uh, tragedy, tragedy um, do not give up. And in Swahili, uh, we say, kuteleza siyo kwanguka, which means when you slip and, uh, when you slip, it does not mean you fall. You can always get yourself up and come out and radiate and use that light to shine and help other people. And that's what we're doing. That's beautiful.
Fred, your turn. My message to the world is, um, you know, there's it. You know, finding finding people around you to to help you dream because um, there are lots of people who who care, and usually it's just um, finding your voice and. Uh, you know, you can doubt. Um, you can doubt if there's anything to do in the face of of such huge challenges. You know, the HIV, AIDS, um, scourge, um, lack of access to healthcare, uh, poverty. So it's an intersection of so many different challenges. But despite all that. You know, we just had to have faith. We had to believe that God was calling us to do something, um, to do something for our village and in the honor of our parents. So, you know, really just taking that leap of faith. And once you take the leap of faith and look around you, um, there are people around you that will help you dream together with you. There are those who will challenge you, uh, but really just calling for help and taking that leap of faith. Um, because now looking back, um, so many incredible doors have been opened and so many lives have been changed. So as Milton mentioned, out of this story of tragedy, um, you know, we are bringing hope, uh, we are bringing love, um, and really just trying to love our neighbors as ourselves. Wow, Fred and Milton, you have such an incredible story, and I loved hearing about your journey. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope you loved this week's episode. If you did, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at the Illuminate Podcast. If you want to learn more about Lawala Community Alliance, their website is www.lwala.org. You can also find them on Instagram at Lawala Community. We hope you have a wonderful week and please stay healthy.